everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here. So grateful to have you joining this show. Make sure, as always, to like this stream. That's a way that you can help fight back the tech overlords who try to control our destinies. That may sound hyperbolic, but it's true, I swear. So just do a like. Also, please make sure you subscribe to this channel. You hit subscribe and then the bell. That's another good way to fight the suppression of important channels. And uh, when I say important channels, I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the guests. Our guests are very important, and we really want to make sure that their stories are heard and their voices are heard. Also, you can become YouTube members. You get cool badges and emojis if you do that. You can also become Patreon supporters. If you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, and if you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show and you join at $1 a month, you get to make this show possible. If you join at $5 a month, you get really great exclusive content. So this week, it's actually a chat between me and Brianna Joy Gray about Joe Rogan and some unfortunate comments he made while defending, quote unquote, defending Ilan Omar. I've been extended interview with Gabor Mate. I've extended interviews with Chris Hedges. It's all there. It's all Patreon. It's all the time. And it's a great time. Again, thank you so much for joining. And we have an amazing lineup on this show. We're going to be joined later on in the show by the writer Tara Alami. But before we speak to Tara, we are speaking to James Cavallaro, Jim, and Lara Shihai. James Cavallaro is a visiting professor at Columbia, UCLA, and Yale, and a professor of the practice at Wesleyan University. He's also the executive director of the University Network for Human Rights. He's taught human rights law and practice for nearly a quarter century, most recently at Yale Law School, Stanford Law School, and Harvard Law School. At both Harvard and Stanford, he established and directed human rights clinics and ran human rights centers. Cavallaro has overseen dozens of projects with scores of students in over 20 countries. In 2013, he was elected to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. He served as president of that body from 2016 to 2017. Lara Shihai is an assistant professor of clinical psychology at the George Washington University's professional psychology program, where she is the founding faculty director of the psychoanalysis and the Arab World Lab. Lara's work takes up decolonial and anti-oppressive approaches to psychoanalysis with a focus on liberation struggles in the global South. She is co-author with Stephen Shihai, of Psychoanalysis Under Occupation, Practicing Resistance in Palestine, which won the Middle East Monitor's 2022 Palestine Book Award for Best Academic Book. So, Jim and Lara, welcome. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Katie. Jim, you are once again being silenced by the powers that be. You're (laughs) muted. This time you did it to yourself, though. If you just unmute yourself. Can we do that for him, Brad? No, I've done it. I've done it. Oh, Sorry, okay. I, I apologize. And uh, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. And I, of course, I would love to have you guys on to talk about what you're working on. But unfortunately, we have to talk about why you're in the spotlight right now. And uh, you're going to explain your stories. But just as a quick overview, um, Lara, you are the subject of a Title VI complaint 
which was launched by the right-wing organization Stand With Us. And Jim, earlier this month, the Biden administration announced the nomination, your nomination, to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. Days later, it withdrew the nomination. Uh, And both of you have the honor of being basically punished over statements you made about uh, Israel. Or in Laura's case, Laura's case, it's a bit more complicated. You'll get into that in a second. But why don't you each tell me what happened in your own words? Laura, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I'll go. And I think... um Thanks again, Katie, for for providing the space to speak about this. And I think this is part of what's really important. You had mentioned that I'm the subject of the Title VI complaint. And I think this is part of it, is that the Title VI complaint by Stand With Us was filed with the Department of Education against George Washington University. Okay, so you're not the subject. Right. But, you know, in keeping with their strategy of sort of whipping up a hate campaign and a smear campaign, they redacted everybody's name but mine. And so... A lot of the ways in which the hate and spirit smear campaign has spread like wildfire, particularly in the right-wing blogosphere, is precisely because they redacted everybody's name but mine, making the appearance or sort of making it seem like this was specifically done by me. And that is a playbook that they follow. Uh, Stand With Us is not a new entity to those of us who work on Palestine, nor to human rights organizations or to organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace who have been following their tactics for quite some time. So um, that is the beginning of the story for me. And, you know, in early January, Stand With Us filed a complaint, again, redacted everybody's name but mine. And very quickly, this moved and became a sort of global thing, in, in especially in the right-wing blogosphere. What's really important about this case is that it really follows a strategy of collapsing in this case, my scholarship on Palestine or my advocacy for human rights of Palestinians outside the classroom with what retroactively Stand With Us would like to make the claim that that is also what happened in my class. That is categorically incorrect. And I think instead what they set up is a situation where myself as an Arab and particularly as an Arab woman, again, not new to me, having to prove in the public eye that I am not anti-Semitic as a as a condition, as a precondition to any conversation. And so that is part of what they rely on, right? And if I didn't work on Palestine, if I didn't advocate for human rights, particularly around Palestine, this wouldn't be a story. But it is a story because it's an easy target for them. At the heart of this is a voluntary brown bag that uh, eminent professor of at the Hebrew University, an Israeli citizen herself, Nadia Shalhub Kavrukian, came to GW. It was part of a launch of a psychoanalysis in the Arab World Lab that I had just launched at George Washington University. And two students particularly took umbrage with that brown bag and then proceeded. And a brown bag, just for people who aren't in academia or haven't attended one of those, that's kind of like an informal chat. Right, exactly. It's meant to be. It was called brown bag because usually you bring your lunch in a brown bag. (laughs) So we had this and we took care. It was off-site of our program precisely because in working with this, I understand the affective charge that brown bags like this might bring. And so took ample measures to not make this mandatory, all the sorts of things, but, but to make it important for our students as clinicians. One of the important things about this is that I am a professor of clinical psychology in a graduate program. What that means is that I am training clinical psychologists who have an ethical imperative to know about these things, to know about what is happening in the name of mental health. Nadira's talk was precisely about 
our tendency or potential to fall into the traps to mental health wash state projects, regardless of who those states are. Hers happened to be the state of Israel because she's an Israeli citizen. And also she's using research that is two Israeli professors have talked about, particularly in the case of Africa and Israeli sort of advocacy in the context of Africa around this stuff. So that is part of what's really important here. And the classroom is misrepresented, of course, in this claim by Stand With Us because it's not in their best intention to release what I believe is an audio taping of this classroom, something that we know Stand With Us does, something that we know they train students to do. And if they were to release that transcript, it would be easy to see that what their claims are are categorically incorrect. And in fact, what is really disturbing is that the exact opposite happened, right? The level of sort of collapsing any sort of position on the state of Israel with anti-Semitism, but also just to make it clear, that was not the content of my course. So what is now, that's what I mean about a retroactive narrative that's being placed on this whole entire thing and sort of bringing together anecdotal data with my scholarship and saying, this must be what happened in the classroom. And instead, what is emerging is a categorically false allegation that I retaliate against students, particularly Jewish students and Israeli students. One thing of great disturbance to me is a collapse of all Jewish students in that classroom. I have many Jewish students across cohorts, many of whom don't see themselves represented in this filing and who themselves are being silenced as a result of this, but also no attention being paid to the damage done particularly to Arabs, Muslims, and Palestinians in that class and across GW campus as a result of this, and also towards Black folks in the class, because there was a rhetoric of anti-Blackness that was unacceptable in any situation in a classroom, but especially for trainees of clinical psychology. And you were, I mean, George Washington looked into this, right? They did their own investigation? Yes, And what did they find and what's the status now? Yeah. So over the course of the semester last year, there was many steps that I was working very closely with my program chair, with the deans to make sure to de-escalate any potential situation. It is... Uh, it is my ethical duty to make sure that every student can learn in my classroom. And it's my ethical duty also to train ethical clinicians. And so it was in my best interest to work alongside my department and the deans to make sure that this was happening. There was a series of um, unfortunate and discriminatory acts towards me by the university, by the administration. I filed two DEI complaints. A colleague of mine filed a DEI complaint on my behalf as well that were not attended to. So that's the real story here that is not being picked up. At the end of the semester, it was shown that there was no wrongdoing on my behalf. And the only correct thing in that filing is that students did not get special accommodations. That is the only correct thing in that filing. Um, But that also shows us that retaliation didn't happen, that everything was done, in fact, went above and beyond what we usually do with any sorts of complaints that are similar to this. The university hired an external consultant to come in and attend to this. They spent money at a time when they are saying there is no money to be spent uh, to attend to this. The other thing that I really want to say is the claims of retaliation um, are also baseless because this class is a zero credit course. And what that means for anybody 
who teaches and who doesn't teach is that a zero credit course doesn't load onto somebody's GPA. So that immediately sort of the idea of retaliation, you can't retaliate if there is no sort of a direct impact on students and nobody in that class got less than an A. So again, the bad faith of the complaint sort of Uh, becomes much more clear around that. But the bottom line is GW found no wrongdoing. And then within a day of this filing, George Washington University decided to hire a third-party investigator uh, to look into this claim. Why this is chilling and why so many academics across the board are really rallying behind me and showing their concern is because this preempts the Department of Education. It moves quicker (laughs) than the Department of Education could ever move. Within one day, you had said, you had declared that you were going to do a third-party investigation. I think for me also, what's really concerning about this is there are two ways this can, you know, shake out. One, this is going to get to the point where you are setting a precedent that any university, when there's a complaint like this, that you are going to preempt the only adjudicating body that can sort of take care of this and hire an external investigator before the Department of Education says anything. Or, as we have seen with the case of George Washington, show us that Palestine is really an exception. Because on February 14th, Palestine Legal filed a Title VI complaint on behalf of three Palestinian students across the university with claims such as being denied access to mental health services when GW shut down trauma services for Palestinian students. Um, They also document a growing sort of trend of extreme disciplinary action towards Palestinian students. And here we are, what are we, February 28th today? There has been no hiring of a third-party investigator. And so as we feared, this shows us again that Palestine is an exception when it comes to these issues, not only in terms of academic freedom, but also in how quickly uh, a university will move or potentially cave to political pressures, as we see with Jim, of course. Right. So that's within the academic realm. Now, moving into the kind of, I don't even know if it, I guess, governmental realm. Jim, tell us about what happened to you. So thanks, both of you. Thanks. Katie, for having me on to talk about this. So after an internal process of reviewing candidates to serve as the U.S. national nominee to be an independent expert on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, on Friday, the 10th of February, the State Department announced that I had been chosen to be the U.S. national candidate, again, to be an independent expert on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which is the principal body overseeing human rights in the Western Hemisphere within the framework of the Organization of American States. That's on Friday. Just to note, you flagged this before, but I had already served on the Inter-American Commission for four years. I was nominated by the Obama-Biden administration, and I served on the commission. I also served as president of the Inter-American Commission. I was elected by my colleagues on the commission. That's on Friday. On Monday, I received an email from a a very small right-wing Trump-affiliated outlet, and some journalist has gone through my Twitter feed and pulled up tweets on Israel and Palestine and on APAC and asked me, did you tweet these things? Do you believe these things, et cetera? I see this. I, I send it to folks at the State Department just so they have a heads up. And they tell me, oh, we've already received this. We've gotten inquiries about this. That's on Monday. The next thing I know, early Tuesday morning, I get a notification from someone at State, please call, urgent. I call and I'm told that my tweets and this news story, which ran Monday afternoon, 
have caused grave concern in the State Department and that the ambassador will call, can he call at this time, that time, okay, yes, this time I'm available, to let me know that they're going to withdraw my nomination. It is made clear to me that the basis for this are my comments on the situation in Israel being characterized as apartheid, one, and my critiques of the excessive influence of APAC, in particular in the campaign of Hakeem Jeffries. They are have been his single largest contributor. I'm told that's why I had a, a discussion with the ambassador, in which I said, I think this is a mistake uh, for A, B, C, and D reasons. He basically tells me, uh, we're sorry, I'm sorry, we're so sorry, this is political, it's not about you, etc. Shortly after that, uh, Associated Press runs a story. They have called state in the interim before Ned Price, the spokesperson for the State Department, announces that they're withdrawing my candidacy. And the AP piece is quite clear that this is because of my views on Israel, and in particular, my characterization of Israel and the situation in Israel-Palestine as apartheid, and my critiques of APEC's funding to Hakeem Jeffries. Later that afternoon, uh, Ned Price has a press conference. He's asked about this, and he, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but pretty close. We actually have that. We can play it. Do you want to play it? And then you can react to it. Sure. Brad, can you play that clip that we have of Ned Price making this statement? His statements clearly do not reflect U.S. policy. Uh, They are not a reflection of what we believe, and they are inappropriate, to say the least. Uh, We have decided to withdraw our nomination of this individual to serve on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. There it is. What he's saying verbatim. My views do not align with the State Department's views. What's the problem? There are two problems here. First, I was nominated as an independent expert, not as an employee or representative of the United States government. My views should be human rights views. They should align with what human rights organizations believe and what I have documented myself when I've been in Israel-Palestine or in any other part of the world. That's number one, that I was never supposed to be in alignment with the United States. And second, the views of the United States, those are the outliers, because the views on this issue of Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Al-Haq, B'Tselem, the Harvard Human Rights Program, I mean, the list is quite long. Many organizations and other organizations in, in Palestine are quite clear, and they have been for some time, that the situation of oppression by the Israeli government of Palestinians in the entire geographic area of Israel and Palestine constitutes apartheid. I'm expressing the view of human rights organizations. The mainstream view. The mainstream view. The United States view is the exceptional position as a matter of law. To have my candidacy withdrawn because my views are not in alignment is totally upside down. My views were never supposed to be in alignment. I was never going to be a representative of the United States. Not Sarah Morgan, not, not, which was, that was a problem in itself, but never was my post. I was always supposed to be an independent expert. But now we've got a litmus test on Palestine, which is being applied even to independent experts, and even in a different hemisphere, Western hemisphere, the Americas. So the way that this is expanding is really worrisome. In academia, we've heard about what's, what Lara's talking about, but also now in, in the role of an independent expert nominated by the United States. So that's, that's the long and the short of it, Katie. And, and again, thank you for having me here to, to talk about this.
Of course. I think it's interesting that we see in both of your cases that these stories break in right-wing media. So we have Free Beacon writing a hit piece about you, Lara, and then we have Algeminer writing this hit piece about you, Jim. And Algeminer is basically, I mean, it's like a tabloid. And as you said, it's Trump-affiliated. George Bush was way too pro-Palestinian for this outlet, for instance. They were very critical of Bush. What do you think that signifies, the fact that these are the places that these stories were broken? It tells us everything. I mean, I took note of that, right? It tells us everything we need to know. In my case, and and it seems like it's similar with Jim, is I got the email a day before the filing was even filed with the Department of Education. So that Stand With Us is releasing this this filing to a right-wing news source, and I'm putting news in scare quotes too, right, (laughs) for for what you just said, before it even is filed with the Department of Education shows us that there's a political motivation behind this it shows us not that it's a conspiracy, but that there's an actual very sound understanding of how the machinery works and how best to whip up the state of fear that actually also matches with to what Jim was saying, a sort of outlying culture in the context of the United States, particularly with regard to Palestine, right? There's a reason why the Center for Constitutional Rights and Palestine Legal both document that there's an exception to free speech when it comes to Palestine. And they've done incredible work doing this. And we're seeing this happen here. And again, like Jim's saying, now it's across a multitude of institutions. It's across a multitude of fields. So we can no longer say this is just one person. This is structural. And you're not allowed to make observations about structural issues. I mean, the fact that you can't point out what APAC does when they're literally a lobby, of course, lobbies do this by definition. They use money to try to sway people and politicians. That's what they do. But they have made it so that if you say that, you're engaged in some kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist discourse. And of course, these people don't care about, I'm going to say that a lot of these people don't really care about anti-Semitism because if they did, they'd know that saying that all Jews are some monoliths who have the same exact view of Israel, they'd know that they weren't representing all Jews and they'd know that they were ironically playing into, if you want to talk about anti-Semitic tropes, I mean, the dual loyalty oath, right? The idea that there, there are two people who use the word Zionists and Jews interchangeably. They're Zionists and anti-Semites. Yeah, it's a great point. I'm, I'm really glad you raised that. I'd love to talk about the first point and, and just to say, among the things that are really worrying about both of our cases is that small fringe right-wing outlets are able to intimidate institutions like George Washington University, a very large and important and well-funded university, and in the same city, the State Department. It was one of the points I I made when talking to people at State. I'm like, are you really going to allow this Algeminer outlet that has no significant bearing on national politics to decide policy for the State Department of the United States? Answer, yes. But the other issue that you raised, which I think is I really love to get into, is I can say, if I want to, that the fossil fuel lobby has bought Joe Manchin. I can say that the gun lobby has bought Tim Cruz. I can say the railroad lobby has bought half of Congress. But I can't say what is patently obvious, that the APAC lobby makes contributions to members of Congress. Those members of Congress then vote and act in full alignment with the interests of the Israeli government. Is that a problem? Yes, that's a problem in terms of democratic theory. I'm a professor of government, among other areas, law and human rights. We should be concerned when lobbying groups spend inordinate amounts of money on campaigns, 
elect officials, and then those officials, in effect, do the bidding of those lobbying groups, whether it's guns, fossil fuel, or the interests of the state of Israel. You just can't say that because the weaponization of anti-Semitism is such that anything that can be contorted or twisted to somehow invoke the possibility of a reference that could conceivably be construed to have a relationship to some trope that might have once been said that could have been anti-Semitism. You connect those 16 points in somebody's head and you've made an anti-Semitic comment and you should be shamed. And we have to take this bull, so to speak, by the horns and say, BS, not okay. We have to be able to call out money in politics, wherever it comes from. And, and, in, this, and in this matter, we have to be able to say, as you said quite clearly, Katie, the conflation of Judaism and the policies of the Israeli government is a major problem. We've got to be able to identify that and say that's not acceptable. And instead, what happens is that we get cowed. We're intimidated. We're, we're, we're in fear of touching the third rail. And I'm in, a, as we said earlier, I'm in a much better position than most. I'm, I'm older. I have all sorts of privileges and titles. And, 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 you know, and a lot of human rights groups came to my defense, which was really remarkable and, 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 and overwhelming for me personally. But, you know, I know I'm, I'm relatively privileged. Right. And, and, and I still had, you know, a couple of weeks of getting put through the grinder. Right. Well, and part of it is what you were saying, Jim, is that we don't even have to make those connections in our head. I think what we see from these sorts of campaigns is an example making so that folks self-police, discipline themselves and get intimidated enough so that they don't speak up. The number of people I have gotten emails from that have said, I feel now intimidated even to say anything, right? I can draw the same parallel if we're talking about lobby groups. I can draw the same parallel in terms of mental health efforts. It is our ethical duty to make sure that mental health efforts are not used as propaganda for any state. That's the point, right? Just like Haiti and USAID, we say the same thing within Israel aid. We see it happening in Turkey. We see what happened right after in Syria, even as Israel was saying, oh, we're helping out Turkey. Then you bomb Syria the next day, right? Or a couple of days after. It is our ethical duty if we are concerned with the psychic well-being of oppressed people particularly, but all people, that we have the ability to speak up and say we will not let our field, our techniques, be cynically used as state propaganda. And what do you call that? Mental health washing? Washing. Yes. Mental health washing. <laughs> so that's like pink washing or green washing. Right. Which is when industries or governments use their alleged advocacy around the environment or LGBTQ rights to whitewash their crimes against oppressed people. Right. So what does that look like, by the way, Laura? Because I had never heard of this until I heard you. Sure. And, and this is not us making this up, right? There are entire disciplines who talk about the ways in which human rights discourse is used to prop up particular propaganda. This should not be a controversy. Instead, and this is to Jim's point too, it's it's being talked about as though I'm invoking some nefarious plan around this. It's like, no, the Israeli state is not an exception when we talk about settler colonialism. It follows the same logic. It greases the same sort of machinery. It uses the same ways of, of oppression and domination that any other settler colonial state or how empire works in general, right? Or colonialism in general. So it is not an exception. That is what we are talking about. And so when we say mental health washing in the same breath that you said pink washing or any one of these things, this is us extending the discourse and saying 
if we are a healthy, helping profession, we have to actually be aware that these are the ways that it's used. So the way that this happens usually is especially around crisis. When there's a crisis, mental health teams or doctors might come in and come into a place and use a particular crisis mode to advocate or advance right? State policy and a sort of uh, vision of the state as a democratic state or as a state that can go into the world and help people. We understand, for example, when we talk about the United States in Afghanistan, right? Or the Institute of Peace, that that peacemaking comes at a particular wager. (laughs) This is not an innocent peacemaking that we are talking about. And so the same thing has to do with mental health. And it's our responsibility to trouble those connections and say, what is the possibility of potentially coercing people in times of crisis? What are the possibility of, in fact, um, taking advantage of people in particular cases and using it, for example, as a photo op? So one of the things that we see is uh, the Israeli state going into these uh, places and you see people wearing Israeli state uh, gear and taking a picture near uh, the Israeli flag. And we know in, in in the professions that we're in, we know that these symbols are not innocent, right? They are sort of following a particular type of discourse that uh, provides a particular also analysis and shows a uh, allegiance and a sort of, um, let's say, working together again with the United States. The United States does the same thing with USAID. So that is what we are talking about. And as a clinician, we need to be very aware of that because people particularly who are undergoing trauma are in very vulnerable positions. And it's our duty to protect people and collectives and make sure that their integrity and their dignity is, is protected, not that of states. And Jim, did you get emails from people? I mean, I know that a lot of people came to your defense, but did you get emails from people who are like, I would love to defend you publicly, but this is such a toxic issue or I can't touch this or... How did people respond in your field? So as you, as you might imagine, I, I, I got my share of hate mail. But again, I was overwhelmed by many, 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 many statements of support. In terms of the self-censorship or the intimidation, there was a letter that was, that was circulated. And, I, you know, and I, I knew of the people that were working on the letter, a letter of support, and it got over 500 signatures. It was authored by Human Rights Watch and other leading organizations. I was contacted by people who offered support but said, I, I'm wary of signing the letter for various reasons. I'm applying for a green card. This, my situation is this. So more than one person wanted me to know, I support you, but I'm a bit concerned about saying that publicly, which is a perfect example of the syndrome or the, or the situation that you're talking about, where people have beliefs and convictions, but are afraid that in the irrational world in which we live with the institutions that we have, many of which unfortunately toe the line with regard to U.S. policy vis-a-vis Israel-Palestine, that people believe something, have convictions, but won't speak publicly. A number of people contacted me to say that. And I was like, thanks, it's okay, I understand. You know, I appreciate your, your, your solidarity. But I also, you know, I take note of the fact that we live in an ecosystem where there is a Palestine exception, where you can speak freely on many, many issues in this country, but people know that anything involving Israel-Palestine, I better think seven times to Tuesday before I say anything. And that's the problem. That's the problem that, that I think, by the way, which is, which is good to just to bring some positivity into this conversation. I think 
in light of, you know, Human Rights Watch's report, which echoes what Palestinian groups have been saying, they've known it, they've lived it. You know, when I was there five years, six, seven years ago, everyone knew that. But when Human Rights Watch comes out and says it, it changes the debate because of the legitimacy that Human Rights Watch has in the United States and elsewhere. I think the tide is turning. And part of that is I think what we're seeing is the intensity of the backlash against that. Lada's case, my case, Ken Roth's case, many other cases. It's, I think, a sense of desperation that they're losing the narrative, that people know that there's a large elephant in the room. And many folks are still antsy and worried about saying it. You know, Omar Shaker, who I was talking to the other day, said, you know, it's, it's the emperor has no clothes. Everyone knows the emperor has no clothes. But now the floodgates are starting to open because people realize we can say this. And that's why they're policing as vigorously as they're policing, because they lost control of the narrative. Right. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, B'Tselem, many, many groups in, in Palestine, they've lost the narrative. They've lost the legal battle in terms of, is this apartheid or is the crime of persecution being committed? They've lost that battle. What's the next battle? We need to intimidate people so they can't speak the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also, we on the left, I mean, when the Hill banned me and fired me because I made this video laying out why Israel was an apartheid state, which cited human rights organizations, Palestinian organization, all the more high profile kind of mainstream organizations like Human Rights Watch, South Africans, international law. They, before that, someone had written an article, this organization called Honest Reporting, which is kind of like an ironically named organization because they're very dishonest and they smear people, but they wrote something. It was about me. It was called What the Hill, which is this gives you a sense of how clever these people are, What the Hill. But I remember thinking, should I do something about this or no, I'll just ignore them. But the truth is like, we do have to, I think, make it so that these people are, so stand with us or Honest Reporting or Al Jemeiner, they need to be exposed so that when people there try to discredit people. People don't know, oh no, that's that right-wing rag, or no, that's that right-wing anti-Palestinian organization, and then people don't take them seriously. But of course, we don't have all the funding and the political connections that the other side has, because there's no APAC for Palestinians. <laughs> but this is really important. We can't underestimate, and sometimes I think, you know me, Katie, I'm not, I'm not about, you know, leftist pessimism. It's all about, there's a watershed moment here, and these opportunities are really important to speak about this and to say what is actually happening to people, right? Jim and myself as individual people, but as representative of a larger structural issue that has repeated itself so much along familiar lines, right? That we're able to see this. I'm able to see myself and Jim. Jim's able to see him. Even though we're in completely different fields, we understand the logic that is repeated here. And that's really important to say. And also to speak about who's, uh, who you're putting your lot in with, when you support these groups, right? So when I get emails and threats of forced deportation, of bodily harm, of rape, right? I am a woman of color living in this country. And this is these are the people who side with organizations like Stand With Us. Once we talk about these things, and I go back and forth a million times over, of course, about sharing these emails that I get, these nasty emails publicly, emails that my partner gets um, about keeping me in line. Oddly, the people who think that they can, uh, um, you know, take over our own countries to save our women end up telling him he should control me more. I mean, these are the people 
that you're putting your lot in with. And I think this is what we need to keep saying is that, yes, it does completely undermine their credibility when they're releasing these issues to right-wing organizations. They're the only organizations that will pick this up. Those organizations come with a particular ideological and political discourse. And if that is who you're putting your lot in with, let's be clear about that. Right. I think this is what's important. And this is, of course, gets into the conversation about progressive except for Palestine. If you are willing to be progressive on all things except for Palestine, this is also the group with whom you're making connections with. Right. A group that has no problem harassing a woman. Right. Across multiple case, uh, multiple fields, multiple listservs, calling for my firing, calling for my deportation, calling for my death. Right. That is who you are supporting. Mm. So, yeah, and, and let me just say, I'm so, I'm so sorry that you're you're getting that those kinds of ugly, violent threats. I just thank you, Jim. That, yeah, that's that's awful. Can you share more about what the status right now is of your case, Lara, and also what some of the things that? And I'm only asking you. I've heard you speak publicly about this, but to the extent that you're comfortable, like some of the things that were said to you. I know that in one interview you mentioned someone suggesting, like, can you or can Arab clinicians have Jewish clients or patients? I know that one of the students said, like, that you or the speaker you're invited were going to celebrate her niece's death or something like just to get a sense of the discourse. Yes. Yes. So the discourse, I mean. Part of it, a lot of it, it came out of that one class. I've since learned that one of the students who complained was an intern with Stand With Us. And so there's another piece of this is that, and why that's important is not just because there's a priming effect, but also because there are particular talking points that we recognize and that we understand as a part of sort of, um, again, in an effort to discredit anybody who might stand up for Palestine, right? So one of the talking points that you had just mentioned before about collapsing all Jewish folks with Zionism is, uh, for example, comparing all anti-Zionist Jewish folks with Kanye West and Candace Owens in, in, and how they represent the Black community. So first of all, that racism, but also uh, understanding that somehow anti-Zionist Jews are a fringe group. Uh, I get very uncomfortable when we start sort of categorizing good Jewish people and bad Jewish people in response. So that is a part of me that gets very uncomfortable because like you said, that is an anti-Semitic trope, <laughs> right? Is sort of having a litmus test. And also suggest that those people are anti-Semites. Correct. Or self-loathing Jews. Yes, exactly. After listening to Professor Nadir Shalhub can speak, that they are certain that she would dance on the grave of their seven-year-old niece, that all Palestinian uh, kids are imminent uh, terrorists because they throw stones and stones are known to kill people. I mean, that's what I mean about talking points that we, these are, these are very right wing Zionist talking points. They're not just sort of your regular liberal Zionist talking points. Um, so those are examples. Um, yes, uh, Arab students, not just at GW across the country, and I mentor a lot of Arab students. I mentor a lot of students of color in general, but because I'm one of very few, uh, let's say public uh, Arab clinicians, I get a lot of Arab students who are studying across the country and in Europe who contact me. And very regularly they are asked, are you able to work with a Jewish patient? We do not, first of all, that is discriminatory to ask somebody, right? And I would never stand for somebody asking a Jewish student of mine if they could work with an Arab as a, as a matter of precondition, like 
again, positioning yourself beforehand, right? But they are very regularly asked this. And for me, that shows a larger problem in the field. My work and my scholarship is on race, but it's also about critiquing the ideological premises of our field. And that is part of the ideological premises is that somehow there are those among us who are presumed guilty always, and who are always in the position to prove ourselves beforehand, prove our competency, prove our intelligence, prove our ability to not cause harm. And the parallel is happening with me. This is what is being asked of me directly or indirectly by George Washington University when they give light or any oxygen to a right-wing smear campaign. They are also asking me to prove myself all over again. I just want to say that I was a graduate student at George Washington University. This environment, this hostile environment to Arabs, to Palestinians, and to Muslims is not new on that campus. I came back with the explicit intent of providing a space and to really be able to build what those of us in the field have been working for a long time. How do we align our field with the principles on which it was built? right? On how do we sort of make sure that people are being trained in a way that make them global citizens of the world, that understand their role in alleviating suffering, and particularly when they're being trained in Washington, D.C. This is not a small detail here, just like Jim was saying, right? Well, you have a certain responsibility to be aware of uh, the of how you might represent certain policies, certain uh, governmental actions, and so on. And, and so forth, but particularly in the field, there's an ethical imperative there. And can you talk about which organizations, both legal and psychoanalysis organizations and Jewish organizations have come to your defense? Yeah, I mean, just like Jim, I, I'm so humbled, honestly, and I'm uh, and I do think this marks a, a a shifting tide. Just again, I will I will echo what Jim said already. So, um, the division of which I am a president, the American Psychological Association Society for Psychoanalysis Psycholytic Psychology. That's a mouthful, but that's I'm uh, I'm the president. That is a division of APA. Uh, the board sort of released a statement, really warning about academic freedom. And I am the third of of a, a third clinician in psychoanalysis who has been attacked by the right wing in the in the in a over the, the past year. So this is no longer just acad- academia. This is also clinical spaces. And because of that, I, there was a letter by uh, over two hundred Jewish colleagues who uh, wrote a letter saying they refuse the collapse of anti um, Zionism being anti Semitic, um, and saying again this follows a trend that we are very concerned about. Um, the uh, USA Palestine Mental Health Network, UK Palestine Mental Health Network, the Palestine Global Mental Health Network, um, Jewish Voice for Peace Healthcare Advisory Council, US ACBI had a letter of support that had over 2,400 signatures in, on, in my defense, uh, BIPOC Analysis Collective, uh, it, just recently a group of Israeli academics uh, signed a letter, again, very concerned recognizing that they and noting that Stand With Us is known to be a, a Israeli advocacy group, despite the fact that they continue to say they are nonpartisan and they don't represent. We know the long history uh, of working with the Israeli government and what sorts of policies that they support. I'm trying to remember there have been so many, of course, letters from the ADC. The ADC represents me. Exactly. A very moving letter from over 110 
uh, students and alumni, including eyewitness accounts from the class in question in that complaint, saying that this is absolutely not what happened in the classroom and sort of also attesting to my character and the ways in which um, I am not anti-Semitic. I do have to say, Katie, at the same time, I'm so, uh, again, humbled and and really just taken by the amount of solidarity that's come through. And also, I find it uh, really problematic that people like Jim and myself have to demean the efforts we have done, not as a side gig here, but literally our life's commitment and our work's commitment to social justice issues. And it is very demeaning when somebody, when you are asked to list all the ways in which you are not something, right? And I think this is part of what happens with these sorts of smear campaigns. You're put in a position that flies against the ethics of what you do. We don't do this work to be seen as doing social justice work. We do this work because this is our life's commitment. And so there's also a way in which it cheapens the work that we do and it expends so much energy that could otherwise be used towards the, towards the ends that we've dedicated our life to. Well, on that note, I wanted to ask you guys if, let's say you were just on my show, because I have you both on my show to talk about what you're up to, but Jim, we'll start with you. What are you working on? What are the things that are important to you that you're participating in? Now you're obviously not going to be on this commission, but one other question before we get to that which is, what does it say about the State Department? It's a good question. What does it say about the State Department? I, I have to admit that at one level, I'm not surprised because I know the State Department's position on Israel-Palestine and how carefully the State Department works to maintain its support for Israeli policies, <clears throat> no matter what those are. At the same time that it tries to do the performative, uh, we stand with all peoples. It's it, you know it's 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 a it's a needle that can't cannot be thread. Uh, what it says, I think, is that and and I'm speculating here, but inside State Department, there are many different voices. There was a process within what's called USOIS, which is the part of the State Department that works on the Organization of American States and that has some legitimate concern about the inter-American human rights system and want, wanting to have a U.S. national that's going to advance human rights. That part of State Department vetted me and thought I was the best candidate. Others at State Department who are less concerned about issues in the Western Hemisphere have an, a different agenda. And I think what it says is, well, maybe the folks with the is Israel-Palestine agenda have more uh, strength, unfortunately, than people who are focusing on human rights issues or trying to in, in, in the hemisphere. And then to your other question, what I'm working on, among other things, you know, I teach uh, the inter-American system. <laughs> That's what I teach at, at Yale and Columbia and UCLA law schools. But in addition to doing that, what I mostly do is I've worked in, in, in the field of clinical teaching in human rights, which is what that means is we teach students to learn how to work with communities how to advocate for social justice through human rights. And the organization uh, that I direct is called the University Network for Human Rights. We're based at Wesleyan. Uh, you know, I have to, you know, shout out to Wesleyan University, your alma mater. Not just because Katie. I graduated from there. Yeah. <laughs> Not just because you're a stellar graduate, but because I've gotten support from Wesleyan, including from the president who, who tweeted in support of me, even though he has different views than I do on Israel and Palestine. But I, I fully respect that he's like, this is a matter of academic integrity and academic freedom, and we stand with Cavallaro. 
but what we do is the organization is we create in universities and we've created a, a, a really dynamic program at Wesleyan to train students outside of law to work in community-based social justice through human rights. So we're doing this in a number of schools in the Northeast. We're setting up a program in Europe. We have a relationship with 30 universities in Latin America. But the idea is to train students, not just law students, but students in other disciplines to work for social justice with communities using human rights in in a broad interdisciplinary fashion. So that's what I dedicate my life to. And actually, I'll be able to spend more time doing that yeah. now that I'm not going to be on the commission. So there's, you know, no hay mal que por bien no venga, or, which is there's every cloud has a silver lining. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what about you, Lara? Your work and also what your book, Psychoanalysis Under Occupation, is about. Yes, which is shout out to my writing partner and the love of my life, Stephen Shihai, um, who wrote... Double partner. Yes, who I got, you know, such an honor to to write. And so we, it just came out in paperback, so it's no longer criminally priced and people can access that. And so we've been, uh, you know, doing speaking engagements for that. There's, again, this shows the shifting tide. Folks are really hungry to see um, non-Eurocentric sort of uh, ways of practicing. People are hungry to lend their support to Palestinian clinicians who've been doing this work for a very long time and who have been, uh, who are no strangers to what it means to dedicate their life to caring for those under struggle when they themselves are also under struggle um, and oppression. And uh, so, so there's that. I'm, I'm also currently about to start writing another book um, about uh, anti-oppressive psychoanalytic praxis. And again, sort of what I teach and what I talked about here is our duty to sort of use these models and these systems and these methodologies of uh, toward liberatory ends. And so really talking about what does that mean and showcasing some of the amazing uh, work that is being done in the UK and South Africa and Palestine and India with folks who I've had such an honor of working alongside. And so over the next year, um, uh, what I'll say is it's not going to silence me. Again, this is not a side gig for me. <laughs> this is my life's commitment. And if nothing else, this has created such a uh, a, a growth in terms of our network of clinicians specifically who are dedicated to alleviating suffering across the board, starting with the most vulnerable among us. Well, great. Thank you guys so much for joining. This has been really great discussion. Laura, keep us up with your case and Jim, keep us up with your work. And come back and you can talk about your projects more. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Well, that was wonderful. And we are not done with the show yet because we've been talking about people being silenced and canceled and punished and fired or blocked for their positions on Israel, on Palestine. And what that means is that we often can't talk about what's happening there because people who want to talk about what's happening there are smeared as anti-Semites. And given how terrible the situation is right now, what we're seeing with the pogroms right now, I wanted to bring on another guest. I'm very excited to have her on. She is a writer. She is an organizer. She's from Occupied Jerusalem and Occupied Yaffa, and she currently lives in Montreal. So we're going to welcome to the stage Tara Alami. Hi, Tara. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks so much for joining. And what can you tell us about the situation on the ground? What's happening right now is being described as a program. I'm going to quote Beth Selim, the Israeli human rights organization, 
who said the Jewish supremacist regime carried out a pogrom in the villages around Nablus. This isn't loss of control. This is exactly what Israeli control looks like. The settlers carry out this attack. The military secures it. The politicians back it. It's a synergy. So can you tell us about this pogrom happening right now? They said that this is exactly what Israeli control looks like, but it's exactly what the establishment of the Zionist state has looked like for Palestinians since 1947, since Zionists were allowed to build settlements on stolen Palestinian land by the British who were colonizing Palestinian land before Zionists did. Um, so what happened a few day, a couple of days ago in Nablus um, was that about 500 to 600 settlers protected by the Israeli occupation forces stormed the uh, the village of Hawara in Nablus and burned uh, hundreds of homes, nine of which were confirmed to have families trapped inside. They burned hundreds of vehicles, they burned shops, um, and, you know, in the middle of to conducting this, actively conducting this genocide, they took a, a break for their evening prayer, uh, surrounded by IOF soldiers, and then they just went back. Uh, they went right back to burning Palestinian homes, Palestinian property. Um, at least 400 people are confirmed to be injured uh, because of because of what these uh, Zionist settlers have done. These settlers stormed uh, several villages inside the occupied city of Nablus. Uh, they stormed Hawara, they stormed Zatara, um, as well as um, outside of Nablus. They also stormed Ariha, and now Ariha is under siege uh, by the Israeli occupation forces. Um, so this is like this is being framed uh, by by many people as uh, some sort of like right wing you know Zionist extremist one off type of thing that never really happens, or it's being framed as like a result of the the recent election of a right wing government um, or as uh, Netanyahu's legacy, but. Um, it's not. This is this is the legacy of the establishment of the Zionist state itself. This is how the state itself was established. How uh, the Nakba be began. How the Nakba began um, since 1948. And you know, just a few days ago, it was the 29th anniversary of the Ibrahimi Mosque massacre, where a settler killed 29 Palestinians, including six children, while they were praying. Um, so this this violence from settlers who are not, you know soldiers in the in the Zionist forces is is something that is you know part and parcel of the, the Zionist state and part of, part and parcel of of Zionism and and settler colonialism on Palestinian land. What else do you think people need to know? Are you in touch with people in Palestine right now? Have they shared their sense of what it's like right now? I mean I totally hear what you're saying that this is being portrayed as more of an exception than it is, but it's a heightening, right, of things that already existed. Um, this is a heightening and it's a response to increased popular resistance from Palestinians. Um, we can see right now that uh, the, the response to, to the settler violence, the response to um, the existence of the settler colonial state on Palestinian land right now is pop popular armed resistance. This is what's happening uh, like this is what's happening throughout the entire occupied West Bank. It's what's happening in Ariha. Um, armed operations are being carried out. And this is the general 
um, feeling and spirit in Palestine. People are resisting. They're not, they're not just victims. They're not just being massacred. They're resisting this violence. They're resisting the genocide. They're resisting their dispossession and displacement and ethnic cleansing. Um, so, so that's, that's, that's what I'm getting from, from the people in Palestine. What else do you want people to know about the resistance to this or the way that the media is covering this or what, what, the media is missing in its representation of this? What the media is missing in its representation of this is that um, they, they're they acting as if this is, you know, not how, uh, like I said, the state itself was established. Like um, these massacres and this sector violence has has been happening for, for decades now. Um, it happened within the, 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 the borders of what is now called Israel uh, in the 1948 territories um, when the British allowed Zionist settlers to build their own militias um, and uh, expel Palestinians from their villages and settle in and squat in their homes. Um, it happened during the mass exodus of 1967 where another uh, more hundreds of thousands of more Palestinians uh, were made into refugees. Um, it happens when 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 Gaza gets bombed by the Isra- by by Israeli airstrikes. Uh, whenever there's an election and they want to get votes by bombing an, an an open air prison that's under an airland and sea blockade. So what's missing is framing this within the larger the larger context of a settler colonial state existing on stolen land that's built on dispossession. It's built on the genocide of the Palestinian people. And without this context then we don't really understand what's actually happening in Nablus or in, in, in Ariha or in any, uh, any in the Sharfat refugee camp, for example, which was under a, a blockade uh, just a few months ago. Here's one of the videos that we have of the houses, of the buildings. This is the fire. And there's been no, I, I believe, um, a handful of people were arrested and then the rest of them, but I think one may be in custody, but all were released right away. The settlers that carried out this violence were surrounded and protected by soldiers from the Israeli occupation forces. You know, this is, this is just daily business as usual for them. So these arrests from from Zionist side are really meaningless, but the Palestinian Authority is making arrests of of resistance fighters, um, of 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 fighters from the lion's den, and this is something that we should also focus about how the how the Palestinian Authority is trying to thwart the the resistance on on the ground while settlers were burning homes and cars and shops and trapping families inside burning houses in Nablus. Palestinian Authority was in the south of Jordan in Aabe meeting with Jordanian representatives and Zionist representatives to talk about security, to talk about coordinating security with Zionist officials to decrease resistance. And so we understand, and you know, you asked earlier about what, what Palestinians on the ground have been saying and how they're they're feeling. We all understand that the Palestinian Authority, regardless of what they're gonna what authority they they think they have over the Palestinian people that they're traitors, 
that they have no interest in Palestinian liberation, that um, this so-called like bogus peace process that they're working on or the two-state solution is, is not acceptable to Palestinians on the ground or even in the diaspora in exile for, for Palestinians like me. And what is your family story, by the way? My family was exiled in 1948 from, from Jerusalem and from Yaffa. Yaffa, which was completely destroyed, and now what's built on Yaffa is Tel Aviv where, you know, Israeli settlers just get to live and go to the beach. Um, that's where my family was exiled from and then refused the right to return to their homeland. By the way, we have an article about one person that we know of has been killed so far. And who knows if there will be more killed. But also, I think sometimes people lose sight of what an injury can mean and what casualties can mean. People are just relieved, oh, this person isn't killed, but people can lose limbs. They can be burned all over. And Israel has, of course disabled countless people through their pogroms. Here's just one article about the man who was killed. His name was Sameh al-Aktash. I mean, it's obviously tragic no matter what when someone is killed, but it's just especially kind of poignant and sad. He had just returned from volunteering in Turkey, and then he was uh, attacked by settlers in the West Bank, and he was 37. He was from Satara in the Occupied West Bank, which is near Nablus. Yeah, and he has, he has two, two children, I believe. And so the, those were left without a father who was, who was martyred. We just had Susan Abohawa on a couple of weeks ago now, and we were talking about the various ways that the Western media downplays or whitewashes what Israel does. And, you know, how they'll describe clashes, they describe cycle of violence, they use the passive voice when someone is killed um, by Israel, they'll use the active voice when the people killing are Palestinian. Um, also, what's interesting is how this discourse about Israel having the right to defend itself, which Palestine is an occupied country. Like they're, they have the legal right to be defending themselves because they're an occupied people. And no one ever says that. And in fact, we have footage of Ned Price from the State Department being explicitly asked by Matt Lee, at, I believe he's at the AP, about whether or not Palestinians do have the right to, to defend themselves. And he refuses to answer. Uh, yeah, I, I hate that guy. I mean, I, anything he says, just in one ear, out the other. I don't think I, I don't take anything he or anyone from from the U.S. State Department or any. I don't take anything they say seriously. The fact is that Palestinians are an occupied people. Their land has been stolen. They have been displaced, dispossessed. They have been enduring and resisting ethnic cleansing for almost seventy five years now. In May, on May fifteenth. It's going to be the 75th anniversary of the beginning of the Nakba, which Zionist settlers call Independence Day for their genocidal ethnostate. And so we have a right to defend ourselves regardless, regardless of what, what, what anyone says. There is also this really disturbing story about children's art. Let me find it. I couldn't believe this. When I saw this, I, I almost thought it was like out of the onion or something. So Gaza children's artwork removed from London Hospital. UK lawyers for Israel filed complaints saying artwork made some Jewish patients feel vulnerable and victimized. A London hospital has taken down a display of artwork designed by Palestinian school children from Gaza after complaints by a British pro-Israel charity. According to a statement by UK lawyers for Israel, 
The hospital was compelled to remove the artwork following complaint by the NGO on behalf of a number of Jewish patients, quote, who said they felt vulnerable and victimized by the display, end quote. The artwork contained a display of decorated plates along with illustrations of their significance. Entitled Crossing Borders, a Festival of Plates, the display was shown by the entrance to the Children's Outpatient Department at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. It was designed by children at two schools run by uh, UNRWA, which is the United Nations Refugee, I can't remember what the W stands for, um, in Gaza, and transferred on to the plates by children at the Chelsea Community Hospital School. The caption for one display was, the olive branch is the symbol of peace and is used to express the wish for an independent Palestine state. Palestinian state. The group said the drawings from Gaza all appear to be professional artwork in the same style carried out by the same person. Um, uh, although it was said to have been designed by children at the Beit Lahia Girls School and the J Jabalia Prep Boys School, uh, a school in Gaza. UKLFI said in the complaint that some of the artwork displayed Palestine as covering the entire area of Israel. And then someone rightly tweeted out, if you feel vulnerable and victimized having to look at display of artwork by children from Gaza, imagine how those children feel when Israeli soldier is pointing a gun at them and get over yourself. Um, yeah. And, and they sell, the thing that was amazing is that they, they celebrated this. The, the organization celebrated getting these uh, images removed. These plates yeah, the, 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 there was an, an article that that's now, I guess, changed a bit, but they said, we are delighted to announce that the artwork has been removed. I mean, these people feel vulnerable and victimized by literally anything. Like, Palestinians can just breathe next to them, and, and you know, these, these smear campaigns would just, uh, they, they would just fly off the handle. So, um, you know, to feel threatened by artwork from, from children is just, uh, just shows you how, how weak they are in, in what they're defending. It's really disgusting. I mean, they actually had a press release, as you said, celebrating this. Uh, you can't, you can't make it up. It's just such a disgusting example of how trauma and tragedy and genocide can be weaponized to justify ethnic cleansing. And it also, it's such a sign of how coddled these people are that they would have the nerve to to say this out loud, like that's what was striking to me, that they would say out loud that they are, that they are delighted. You know, like you think that they would say that behind closed doors, but they're so used to being able to successfully vilify Palestinians and pre present all Palestinians as, as evil or, or just like terrorists waiting to happen, that they actually just say this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they they say the most ridiculous things, but but if you want to talk about feeling vulnerable and victimized, just a few months ago, I mean, referring to that tweet, just a few months ago, there was a child who was chased by an Israeli occupation uh, soldier, and he his heart literally stopped beating, and he was seven years old, and he died, um, and so you know his body out of fear literally stopped functioning, and so that's 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 vulnerability, um, having art. Um, drawn by children from Gaza is not um, not victimization of any kind. Right. It's, I mean, it's just, I can't, I know, I, I know it's one of those things that's like not surprising, but it's still shocking, even though it probably shouldn't. Yeah, it's, it's really frustrating. I mean, it's frustrating that this is still happening. It's frustrating that 
Lara before me had to explain, you know, what was going on to her. It's frustrating what's that it's happening to her, that it's that it happens to Palestinian academics, um, that it happens to Palestinian students. I mean, this is yeah. Here, by the way, I'll show some of the plates. Try not to get triggered, guys, by these plates. They're really, really victimizing. So trigger warning. Here they are. I see at the top left, there's an olive branch, very triggering. There's a Palestinian flag, obviously very violent. There's a, looks like a woman in the middle, another woman. Uh, we have uh, a man sitting with a hat on, a man sitting by the sea, which is very upsetting, apparently. They were actually upset about something being described as part of Palestine, because they obviously don't want anything to be part of Palestine. So they wrote um, the picture on the plate accompanying the text shows the Dome of the Rock with a large Palestinian flag, implying that Jerusalem, and in particular the site of what had been the Jewish temple, would be part of a Palestinian state, UKLFI said. The Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque are located in East Jerusalem, an area designated as Israeli-occupied territory and international law since 1967. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And as you pointed out, they did change the language. So originally they had they originally had said I think it was something like we are we are delighted to announce that we're delighted to report. Right. Yeah. So up uh, so the apartheid apologists at UK Lawyers for Israel edited the text in their ludicrous article, removing delighted and designed by children from Gaza so they can appear less unhinged, a case study in the rewriting of history. So they wrote Hospital removes Gaza artwork from hospital corridor. We are delighted to report that Chelsea and Westminster Hospital has removed a display of artwork designed by children from Gaza. Then they changed that to hospital removes Gaza artwork from hospital corridor. Um, uh, they, sorry, they, they use the same one, but they uh, headline, but then the subheadline writes, Chelsea and Westminster Hospital has removed a display of artwork incorporating Palestinian political propaganda. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, 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 the flag of, of Palestine over the Dome of the Rock, the, the flag of Palestine um, with, uh, with the olive branch. I mean, this is, this is the reality for us. Like this is, this is Palestinian liberation. Um, and I, I, I do wear like a map of the entire, entirety of Palestinian land. And this, this is Palestine. And, and, and so regardless, you know, I, I mean, I hope the children in Gaza didn't didn't hear about this, but um, but yeah, this is this is the reality for all of us, and this is what we're working for: um, liberation for for Palestine and Palestinian people. Mm. Well, you'll be very relieved to know that the hospital has said we are sorry that the removal of this artwork has offended some communities and that its contents offended other communities. We will be working with the relevant parties on the next steps for the artwork. Right. And, and the relevant parties are always like extremely Zionist um, organizations and like one Arab person who's like barely involved with Palestinian organizing. So we know where that's going. You were talking about the Palestinian Authority. Why is it that they don't represent Palestinians? What are their ulterior motives? So the Palestinian Authority was the was literally invented during the Oslo Accords in, in 1993, where the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, was basically doing uh, these negotiations with the Zionist state 
um, about uh, a so-called peace process um, to to work towards peace and coexistence between colonizers and and the people they they colonize and ethnically cleanse. Um, and so this was against uh, against first of all the will of Palestinian people at the time and still now, um, and it was. Uh, Behind, it happened behind closed doors uh, between the Yasser Arafat, who, who essentially, you know, is, is a traitor. Like he, he went behind closed doors and was negotiating with the with the Zionist state and Zionist representatives. And there's this famous photo of him shaking hands uh, with Bill Clinton, smiling in the background. Um, the uh, the PA uh, is is not interested in liberation. Um, what a what a two state solution entails is basically more than 90% of Palestinian land being stolen by the Zionist state and Palestinians living in ghettos uh, surrounded by Israeli areas. Um, and so the two-state solution is, is, is just, you know, putting people in, in tiny ghettos with no resources, uh, displacing people from, from like, like how people are displaced right now, like the people living in, in refugee camps inside Palestine, like Rafah, like Shafat. Um, these are people who were displaced from areas that were occupied in 1947, 1948. And so the two-state solution is just, you know, like a, um, that, but like times one million, you know, putting Palestinians in tiny um, areas with no resources, controlled and surrounded by uh, Zionist, you know, sovereign territory. Um, and so Palestinians have opposed, uh, there, there's been a popular opposition um, to, to the two-state solution. There's been a popular opposition to the Palestinian Authority. Palestinian Authority has um, imprisoned resistance fighters. It's assassinated um, people who, who oppose it, like Nizar Banat. Um, it facilitates nitrates by the Israeli occupation forces in the occupied West Bank. Um, it works it coordinates security with the Zionist forces. Like, you know, like I mentioned just yesterday and before yesterday, they were in Jordan talking about how they can work together um, to, to decrease popular resistance on the ground. And, and this resistance that's being fostered within Palestinian communities and uh, within the, for, for, and among Palestinian youth against, against um, the, against settler colonial genocide. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really important to know that the Palestinian Authority has, you know, basically zero authority on, on what Palestinians think and what they want. And it's just a puppet regime uh, that, that was placed there by, by the Zionist state. And, um, you know, we, we also all recognize that the Zionist state is just, you know, an, a proxy for, for imperialism, uh, for U.S. imperialism in, in the region. Um, so that's what the PA represents. Thank you for that explainer. I also want to share, speaking of cancellation, and I'm going to ask you about the own, your own experiences with attempted cancellations, but Roger, well, I, you, everyone should be very happy because one of the biggest anti-Semites is, not, uh, is being prevented from uh, performing. Uh, and he's being prevented from performing in a country that has a really good record when it comes to anti-Semitism. They definitely understand what anti-Semitism is, and they should definitely be the arbiters of what anti-Semitism is. And I'm speaking of Pink Floyd's Roger Waters Frankfurt concert canceled. German officials cite anti-Semitism. Waters is, quote, considered one of the most widely spread anti-Semites in the world, end quote, according to Frankfurt officials. 
Um, this, uh, and, and it's, uh, let's see, the city wrote, uh, the background to the cancellation is the persistent anti-Israel behavior of the former Pink Floyd frontman, who is considered one of the most widely spread anti-Semites in the world. He repeatedly called for a cultural boycott of Israel and drew comparisons to the apartheid regime in South Africa and put pressure on artists to cancel events in Israel. Wow. I can't believe that he said that Israel is an apartheid state. He sounds like such an anti-Semite. He sounds almost as anti-Semitic as Bethlehem, the Israeli human rights organization that agrees that Israel is an apartheid state. They are famously self-loathing Jews, Bethlehem. I mean, yeah, if anyone's an expert on anti-Semitism, it's, it's Germans for sure. Yeah. Who the hell are yeah. they? I mean, they even, they also um, did something against a Jewish artist. Like, they need to deal with their own shit. How the hell are they going to, I mean, they shouldn't be defining anyone, isn't it? Like, you, they shouldn't be equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism in any sense, but they really have the gall to tell a Jewish artist that he's being an anti-Semite because of his criticism of Israel? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this conflation between, uh, between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism slash anti-colonialism slash anti-imperialism um you know it's it's a tired story uh we've we've all been through it and honestly like um i'm i'm of the opinion that uh you know of course there are degrees to this but i'm of the opinion that uh i i it's it's not on my list of concerns you know like it's 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 the very like very bottom of of my list of concerns and things that i'm concerned about of what people think you know, about what I'm saying and what I'm doing with regards to Palestine and Palestinian liberation. Um, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm no longer interested in, in, in entertaining these, these false equivalencies between anti, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. It's, it's just pointless. It's endless. It's an endless spiral. And um, yeah, like, like you said, they say the most ridiculous, unhinged, insane things. Um, and so, yeah. 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 And no, Roger Waters is not Jewish. This is a different Jewish artist. I know you know that someone in the chat asked if he was Jewish. There just needs it's 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 disgusting. And I I do think it's I understand not caring about it. It just it's like it also needs to be pushed back against or else people can't go have concerts. You know what I mean? Or people have to have be investigated at George Washington. Uh, We just have to like once and for all just prove to people that those things are not the same. And that actually, as I said earlier, it's anti-Semitic to suggest that they're the same. And all the people it is, who like... It is anti-Semitic, yeah. 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 I mean, there, the, like I said, there are different degree, degrees to it. Like, what, what happened to me, I just, you know, I just put a statement and I was like, I didn't say anything anti-Semitic. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what happened to you? <laughs> Um, well, you know, just, just the usual, uh, adults that are, that are being paid by, by the Zionist lobby, uh, to work for organizations like Canary Mission, Stop Antisemitism, Stand With Us, uh, etc. like going on, um, on rampages against Palestinian students, uh, to try to get them expelled or fired or what have you. Um, and so that, that's what happened to me. And at first it was, it was really distressing. Like I was, I was really worried about my safety. Like they exposed where, where I work. Um, they were spamming my university. Like I, I did not think that I was that important, uh, for them to be spamming my university to try to get me expelled. Thank you. (laughs) Um, but you know, that's what happened. And, uh, 
you know, fortunately I was actually like locked from my Twitter for a week when it happened. So all of this was happening and I couldn't respond, but probably good. Um, saved you a lot of yeah, it, of it actually ended up being a blessing in disguise yeah. because I, I came up with a statement and I was like, well, I didn't do this and I'm not anti-Semitic. So thank you so much for your contribution and we're going to move on. Did it have an effect on you and your employment or your, like, I mean, it was stressful obviously, but, and your address was released? Um, well, they, they released where I work. Uh, it, it didn't have an effect on, they, they couldn't get me expelled from my university. They couldn't get me expelled from, from my graduate program because I did not violate any student code of conduct. I know that, they know that, they they're just, like you said before, really confident in their position. And so they say the most unhinged things. Um, they, they lie. Like someone said I was a doctor and I was working with patients. I'm, I'm literally not. Um, and so they say these the craziest things and that just expect people to believe them. Um, but I didn't do anything wrong. And so I'm, I'm still, still in my program, still working, still fine. And, and hopefully I'm going to stay fine. Yeah. Well, thank you. Any final words? This has been really elucidating. Anything else you want people to know or anything else you want to say? Well, no, thank you so much for having me. And and I want to extend my solidarity to to Dr. Lara and uh, send my love and yeah, and of course my love to, to my people in Palestine who are who are resisting and who are working towards Palestinian liberation within our lifetime. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.